It's time for another episode of the Franchise Business Radio Show, broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel Studios in Atlanta, sponsored by Franchise Intellect, knowledge of the franchise community for franchise selection. More info at FranchiseIntellect.com. Also made possible in part by Franchise.City, a better way to buy a franchise. More info at Franchise.City. And FranServe, the world's largest franchise consulting and expansion organization. More info at FranServe.com. Now, here's your host, certified franchise consultant, Pamela Curry. Good day. This is Pamela Curry, franchise consultant for aspiring entrepreneurs looking to find a franchise that aligns for them and host of the Franchise Business Radio Show. The Franchise Business Radio Show was founded to be a platform to bring business professionals together to connect, educate, and collaborate to serve the franchise community and those considering franchise ownership. Today, as a guest, we have a longtime professional friend and franchise attorney, Tom Branch, in the studio to discuss franchise law. Tom, welcome back to the Franchise Business Radio Show. Well, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Uh, great to be back in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, as many don't know, uh, franchise law is actually very specialized, and I'd like to share with our listeners a little bit about your background. Uh, Tom Branch has been in private practice since 1980 after graduating from the University of Georgia School of Law. He received his undergraduate degree from Emory University in 1975, graduating with high honors. Tom is also a member of the American and Atlanta Bar Associations, as well as the State Bar of Georgia. He is a member of the American Bar Association Forum on Franchising. He was co-founder of the Southeast Franchise Forum, which I didn't know that, Tom. That was new news to me. It was a long time ago, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's worked out very well. Oh, and, and you're also co-founder of the Atlanta Bar Association Franchise Law Committee. Tom has served on the board of directors of the Atlanta Bar Association and served as a board member and a chairman of the board of the Atlanta Bar Association sole practitioner and small firm section. He was the author of Franchising in Georgia in the Georgia State Bar Journal, November 1987, and Tom is by far a trusted legal advisor to a diverse range of clients in the franchise community, including franchisors, franchisees, and those who are considering a franchise and would like to understand that franchise disclosure document and receive legal counsel before signing a franchise agreement. Tom, I'd like to start off with some basics and uh, then discuss some more mature topics when it when it comes to franchise law. Uh, uh, to kickstart us off, would would you please just provide an overview of franchise regulation in the U.S.? Well, there is a lot of regulation. That's the bad news. The good news is it hasn't really changed materially in the last couple of decades. Uh, franchising is regulated both by the federal government and at the state level. Mm -hmm. uh, on the federal level, since 1979, Federal Trade Commission uh, regulates the sale of franchising. So its regulations deal with the, the sale part. And, of course, that's a national rule, so it applies everywhere. Mm -hmm. Then there are state statutes. Um, there are 14 states so-called registration states that say that if you, Mr. Franchisor, want to sell in our state, um, then you have to register with us first. And those run the gamut from one where you just send them a check and a cover letter to 
most of them where they do a review, there's an examiner who looks through the FDD and oftentimes will come back to you and say, well, change this or add that or, you know, something like that. So, um, you know, there's that process. There are also state laws generally called relationship laws that get into uh, the circumstances or limitations in which the um, franchisor might terminate a franchisee or uh, refuse to renew one. And um, and and part of the regulation is the franchise disclosure document, and um, you know that is a legal document that a franchisor has to disclose to any prospective franchisees. Could you talk to us a little bit more about that franchise disclosure document and the layout of it? Yeah, the franchise disclosure document is mandated by the Federal Trade Commission rule, and um, the idea is that. Uh, before the rule, it was felt that franchisees or prospects either didn't get any information, they got information that wasn't helpful, or in some cases got information that was just false. Mm. And so uh, the the disclosure document has, they've tinkered with it over the years, but it basically is designed to, to tell a buyer uh, about the franchise company, about the brand, uh, and about the deal, mm. you know, what does it cost? How much is it going to cost to open, you know? And then uh, about the brand, how are they doing? Are they growing or, or shrinking? Do they have a lot of turnover? Um, and then, of course, the question, we may talk about this later, but, um, you know, how much might I expect to make, <laughs> you know, if I buy this? That's what people always want to know. Of course. So it gets into all of that. That makes great sense. And and before it was called the Franchise Disclosure Document, we'll show our age here, Tom, uh, it was referred to as? UFOC. <laughs> and I still have people call and say, I want to franchise and I want you to create the UFOC as well. Yeah. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's kind of old, but uh, sure. And UFOC stood for Uniform Franchise yes. Offering, Offering Circular. Circular. Yeah. yeah. And, and there, it, that kind of made sense to me because it, it really is laid out as it's a uniform format. And the FDD is uniform format. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, we call it the FDD, but I kind of like that uniformed word, I guess. Right. And Offering Circular is... Um, like securities offerings, or use those terms. Makes sense. So um, that's that made sense from that standpoint. Yeah. So I, I do know with this, uh, the franchise disclosure document, which does have sort of a, a uniformed layout. Um, if you look at different ones, the table of contents basically are, are giving you an outline. It's giving you a table of 23 specific items plus exhibits. Could you kind of walk us through what that layout looks like? And when someone is, let's just say, initially receiving that document, it can seem a little bit overwhelming. So if we break it down for them, that might help. Well, first of all, it's worth saying that the the FDD itself, it has exhibits, which would include the franchise agreement. And that is a legal contract. And that's that has a fair amount of legalese, frankly, in mm-hmm. it. The FDD itself, the disclosure part, is supposed to be written in plain English. Yes. So, I mean, this sounds small, but rather than saying franchisor and franchisee, uh, it uses you and we. Mm. we. We are obligated to do this. You are obligated to do that, mm. which should be helpful. So, as you mentioned at the opening, it's very important that people at least attempt to read 
that part of it. <laughs> I mean, they may need help with the, with the agreement because of the legal terminology, but um, just getting the UF, getting the FDD. Um, first of all, look to see the issuance date of that document is on the cover. And it's amazing to me how many people come to me and they've got one that's at least a year old. Mm. I had one the other day, it was two years old. <laughs> and, um, you know, I can look at it, but it's, you know, things have changed oh. in the last two years, as we all know. Right. Um, but it starts off with a little history of the franchisor, how long have they been around, and the brand. How long has the brand been around? And a description of the of the business, because mm, mm -hmm. increasingly we get into service businesses that, or even product businesses that you know, f for many of us, is not real or not, not going to be familiar with it. Sure. And you know, what is this? How do who are your customers? How does this work? Mm -hmm. So a little bit about that. Um, you list the officers and directors of the franchisor. So who are those? people, how long have they been there, uh, and then any litigation or bankruptcy history on the franchise company or those people. And some people will have, some companies will have a fair amount, and quite often there's none. Um, and then you get into uh, the next few items deal with the sort of financial part of the deal. What's the upfront payment for the franchise fee? Uh, it, are there any other payments? Do you have to buy your startup inventory from an affiliate, something like that, that's, mm -hmm. that would be due on signing, you know, that kind of thing. And then ongoing fees, about the royalty, advertising, uh, technology is something you see more and more, a monthly yep. technology fee. I have fee. noticed that. Uh, renewal, transfer fees, things that should be in there. Uh, and then a very important item, item seven, is – What's it going to cost me to get this thing open and operate for some sort of reasonable startup period? Mm. And it's usually a range, and that range actually is on the cover page. So, you know, before you get two paragraphs into the document, you can see that uh, this is a business that's going to cost me a couple hundred thousand dollars to get open or, or you know, whatever. Right. So that would um, – this is more your area than mine, but that would – probably disqualify or qualify a lot of candidates based on what their net worth might be. Mm. So you get into those things, and then um, there are some sections on what are the obligations of the franchisor um, with respect to training and site location, that kind of thing. How quickly does the franchisee have to get the business open, mm. which is always very important. Um, and then uh, talk about territory. Does the franchisee get an exclusive territory? That's gotten to be something more and more complicated um, because of Internet and other means of selling products. Sure. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, trademarks. Does the franchisor have a federally registered trademark? You'd think they would, but often they don't. <laughs> um, and then um, – the two really big things that I look for, look at pretty closely, items 19 and 20. 19 is the franchisor does not have to give information about how the stores are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and historically, most franchisors didn't give any information because they're risk averse. They, nobody's going to sue them if they don't give. But more and more people do. You've probably seen that. Yeah. And uh, in some industries, it's the norm. I represent a couple of home cleaning 
businesses, well, just about everybody in that business gives that information. So if you don't, you're at a competitive disadvantage. Makes sense. And and just uh, to make sure our listeners are, that's what we refer, it's often referred to as the item 19. And that's an important item in the franchise disclosure document that's representative of financial performance representation, or what we used to call earnings claims. That's right. Mm -hmm. And you'd be amazed um, at how many franchisors have that information and it's bad. (laughs) You know, it's just bad. You know, the, the half of the franchisees that are reporting are doing under a hundred and ten thousand a year and mm. breaking, maybe breaking even. But you know, it's in there, it's so in that's there. good. Rather, I'd rather read it and know now than find out later. So that's an important item. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next item, item twenty, has tables that give their franchising history. So are they growing? Where are they growing? So sometimes you'll get a, you'll look at a franchise and it's from, they'll have, they're growing, but they're in California and that's where all their franchisees are. And you're looking to go to Albany, Georgia, mm-hmm. you know, with some fruit drink concept, you know, maybe, you know, maybe not. Right. Um, but that's, that's really an important item. Yeah. And then their exhibits, of course, franchise agreement is one, but the financial statements of the franchisor are, is in there. And uh, those are audited. Mm-hmm. So you can pr- pretty well rely on what's in there. And, um, you know, you want to know as a buyer, is this company likely to be here in mm-hmm. a year or two? And yes. I'm, not, I'm not an accountant, but, you know, you look, do they have some horrible note payable, you know, that's going to be due at the end of the year? Are they losing money every year? Right. That kind of thing. More and more franchise brands are owned by uh, venture capital type groups, equi- uh, uh, private equity groups. Yes, I've been seeing a lot of that. Financials may be consolidated. It may be hard to follow all of that, but at least it's there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, do, is there any reason to think that the franchisor is going to be struggling financially? Yeah, so a lot, a lot of great data in the franchise disclosure document. And is it is it accurate for me to say that when you receive the franchise disclosure document, uh, you'll notice that table of contents is going to disclose you on 23 specific items. So the first half of that FDD is written in non-legal jargon uh, to give you data on those 23 items. Then you have all of the exhibits. And like you said, uh, you have the franchise, the actual franchise agreement, which is the contractual agreement that is signed between the franchisor and the prospective franchisee. But that is written in legal ease, like you said. So it's almost like you're getting the same information twice. The first half is a non-legal jargon and then you actually the con- contract, which is what you're signing on. That's right. And, and a fair amount of the FDD is a description of what's in the contract. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the contract fleshes it out, but, yes. you know, what are, what are the advertising requirements and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I want to kind of go back to a couple of the items um, that are obviously provided in the franchise disclosure document. You you discuss the, you know, items five, six, and seven, which are more around the explanation of the different fees, um, which you explained uh, elegantly, seven being a very important one because what's that estimated initial investment to get that business off the ground and up and running. Uh, but a very common fee um, that is obviously there is how the franchisor makes money, and that's the royalty fee. 
what is, I mean, do you have any thoughts or opinions between a fixed flat royalty versus a percentage royalty or a minimum royalty? I mean, what are you seeing from a legal standpoint? I don't see a lot of flat royalties anymore. Used to see that occasionally. Mm-hmm. And when I see a uh, minimum, usually it's um, it's a business where that's really designed by the franchisor to make sure if you're not doing anything, mm. you're not doing any business, I have a home cleaning business franchisor, and they have that. Yes. So you've got to pay something. You're, hold, you're holding a territory yep. that we could be selling to somebody else. So yeah, it's a 7% royalty, but you have a minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't pay the minimum, then you know, you're subject to termination. And that percentage royalty is typically or almost always on gross sales. Yes. Yeah. The only exclusion is sales tax, but um, yes, because they, they're not going to let you uh, let the franchisee tinker with the, their expenses and you know, mm-hmm. we have high labor, so I'm not, there's no royalty this month. Though. It's always, <laughs> it's always on gross. That makes sense. Yeah. And um, another really important item, I know it's, they're all important. All of the provisions are important. You want to read it in its entirety. Uh, but I'd like to talk a little bit about territory. And I know that is very driven by the type of business model it is. But like you said, it's, things are shifting now with e-commerce and um, everything that's taking place. Talk, Talk to us a little bit about what you see from territory definition. Yeah, you do in the FDD. When you file, I've learned the hard way, when you file with these registration states, you have to say whether that's an exclusive territory or not. Mm. And and that's exclusive is the word they're looking for, not protected or special, mm. you know, or something like that. <laughs> no, do you have an ex- – if you don't say you have an exclusive territory, then presumption is you don't. And there's some disclaimer language that has to go in. Um, but, it, yeah, it, it really depends a lot on the on the on what it is that the business is about. Mm-hmm. And even if it is, even if there is an exclusive territory, the question I always have if I'm representing the buyer is, okay, so I have, um, I've been given Cobb County, Georgia, where mm-hmm. we are, I guess. What if there's nobody in Fulton County next to me? Can I go provide services uh, there? Mm. I'm not infringing on anybody. Right. Um, and a lot of times the agreements don't really say anything about that. So if you're, if you're either it's a new brand or you're sort of a, a pioneer in an area, mm-hmm. geographical area, that's something um, that you'd want to clarify in, in terms of maybe an addendum. Uh, you're not really asking anybody to change anything because it hadn't been addressed. But, um, you know, how does that work? Yes. And a lot of the businesses that I represent, franchisors, they really don't have national accounts because of the nature of the business. But I'm doing some work now for somebody who does. Mm. So, okay, selling a service to um, use car car dealerships. And, uh, you know, that's a very – there are some big players in that industry. So if um, we have a relationship with AutoNation or CarMax mm-hmm. and there's a location in your territory, uh, who who serves that? Yeah. And what are, are you under limitations as a franchisee in terms of price? Mm. What if the franchisor isn't happy with how you're doing it mm-hmm. or you've just started? Maybe, the, maybe there are several locations and the franchisor wants to sort of ease you into that. So all those are things – 
from the franchisor standpoint that if it's applicable, you really have to think through those things. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And do you find that, uh, like you said, if it's sort of an emerging brand and uh, that new pioneer franchisee has that exclusive territory, but the neighboring territory doesn't currently have a franchisee, is it common for the franchisor to say, yes, you can service that neighboring territory, but when we get the f- new franchisee taking over that territory, you're going to have to give up those customers. Right. And you see that. I've got I see that in a home cleaning business. Yes. You've got regular customers. That's a perfect example. And um, yes, you can service them. But if um, we sell that territory, you've got to give those up. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Another, uh, for anyone that's considering a franchise, they should be thinking the end in mind, right? We hear that a lot. Or what's going to be your exit strategy? And when I think about that, I do think of the item 17 uh, because that is providing you with the terms, the term of the franchise agreement. A franchise agreement has a term, uh, 5, 10, 15 uh, years, um, not months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That would be a bad deal. Yeah, that would be (laughs) exactly. Fifty thousand dollars, and you have five months. Yeah, good luck. Good luck with that. Uh, And also, um, you know, item seventeen also gets into the ability to renew that term or possibly sell transfer that agreement. Talk talk to us a little bit about what you see as common exit strategies, or you know, what makes for appealing or not an appealing item seventeen. Well, pretty much every franchise agreement is going to provide that if you want to sell, you the franchisee, uh, you've got to get approval of the franchisor. Mm, mm-hmm. And because they don't want to come to work on Monday and find out that the franchisee is you know, me instead <laughs> of somebody that's been operating the business for all those years. And that's, and that's reasonable. Um, franchisors, although franchisors can be sort of hard-nosed sometimes, most that I deal with are risk averse. They don't want to get in litigation over things that they really don't need to. Sure. So if it's a reasonable request, uh, they don't have any bad experience with the prospect. Um, you know, he's not a competitor, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Then generally they're going to go along with it. Um, a lot of times they want to know, are you, are you burdening the buyer with so much debt that, you know, there's a chance or likelihood he may not be successful ah. kind of thing they might want to look at. But um, and then there'll be a transfer fee and those vary. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what I've seen most typically is it's a, you know, $5,000, something like that. Sometimes or, a flat fee. Yeah, often a flat fee or a percentage, you know, like a fifth of the initial fee. But you know, you know what the initial fee is, so you can, if you can do the math, you <laughs> come up with that. But occasionally, it's it's much more than that. Mm. You know, it, like another a whole new franchise fee mm. on transfer or renewal, and that's unusual. And you know, that's kind of thing you want to push back on. That makes sense, absolutely. Yeah, and generally, the buyer will have to sign a new franchise agreement. Wouldn't be a new fee because he's paying the transfer fee. But the franchisor usually wants a new agreement on their new current format. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. So if I, yeah. So if, I, if I'm the franchisee and, you know, I've, um, you know, I signed a 10 year 
term franchise agreement. And all of a sudden, seven years into my 10 years or so, I go, hey, I want to sell this. I built it. The whole uh, buy, build, sell model. Find a buyer for my franchise territory. That new buyer usually obviously has to be approved by the franchisor. And that new buyer or franchisee typically will get a brand new franchise agreement and term. And new term. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's usually right. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, another, I mean, key item that we've already been talking about is this financial performance representation, the item 19. <laughs> uh, we are starting to see more and more franchisors provide data here. And I always like to say we welcome that data. Um, Ed, like, how do you commonly see those written? What do those... You know, what does that data look like? How is it laid out? Sometimes it's simply um, gross sales. Mm. You know, this is usually you would look at uh, franchise franchisees that were open at least the entire prior year. Mm -hmm. So you're not showing information on people that opened up in December, that kind of thing. Uh, and what what were their gross sales? Average gross sales across the board, and one thing that they um, states have required, and the and the FTC has gone along with this. Anytime you talk about averages, you have to show median numbers. Mm. So, which is important because um, I've got some. I represent people who have franchisees that may have huge territories, and they have some that are doing you know two million in gross sales, but they have others that are not doing much at all mm -hmm. or at smaller territories. And, you know, what's the guy in the middle? What, what does that look like? Sure. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes the item 19 information doesn't look that good. And I always sort of look at that guy, person in the middle and talk to my, my uh, client, you know, how would you like to be that? Is that what you, you want to spend this money to be grossing $75,000 a year, you know, that's not what most people are in it for. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, and I think it's an important point to make that there's always a performance gap in a franchise system in any business. You've got your high performers, your middle performers, your low performers. Yes. Uh, and, and another thing you have to do, if you um, give the information on your top third, you have to give the information in the same format on your bottom third. Okay. So you can't. You can't cherry pick like that. Yep. Yeah. So it's pretty helpful from that standpoint. Yeah. It's always welcome data. Now, sometimes franchisors don't provide data. So what advice do you give to someone when there is no data in the item 19? How does someone get to building that performa? Well, they'll need to, uh, within that brand, they'll need to call some franchisees, which they ought to do anyway. Absolutely. One of the exhibits we talked about is a list of the franchisees. So if if I'm buying a franchise for Asheville, North Carolina, and there are a couple of other franchisees, you know, in, in North Carolina or even maybe in Asheville, mm -hmm. those would be people I might call. And not just to ask about numbers, but you know, what's your experience been? How was the training? Yes. How is the software, the point of sale system? Is that a good system? Mm -hmm. You know, those kind of questions. Absolutely. But, but yes, if you don't mind my asking what kind of gross sales are you reaching and, you know, where were you maybe after year one? What, how does, what's the ramp up period? You know, yeah. That kind of thing. Makes sense. And sometimes people will give that kind of information and sometimes not. 
What's interesting to me is is when we have a ground level franchisor. I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? right, right. <laughs> There's an evolution to a system, to a growth of a system. So, uh, and let's say that ground level, you know, you've got the founder of the of the business model, the concept. Now they're ready to take that concept, package it, franchise it, and start growing as a franchise system. And people want to have data in the item 19, but they're ground level. They don't have franchisees with that to offer that data. But I'm starting to see some of these ground level franchisors provide data around their corporate locations. Right. I see that. Are you seeing that? A lot, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can do that. The trick is once you start, once you have franchisees, it needs to be their their data. Yeah, okay. That makes yeah, sense to yeah. me. I yeah. had somebody who he did his data and um, I realized he was, we were updating, renewing for the year and uh, I said, well, we can't use that anymore because you've got five franchisees. You need to use their numbers. And he said, no, their numbers aren't good because they don't follow my system. <laughs> so, well, then we've got to stop. Dude, we can't either use them or we or you need to not do an item 19. No data. No data in item we 19. We can't do that. Yeah. That's yeah. good to know. That's yeah. Uh, another another important uh, provision or item in the franchise disclosure document that you touched upon is the item twenty. That really is that table of growth and attrition. Uh, what time frame is that item twenty representing? Um, it goes back three years. It's a three year window. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you see at the beginning of the, each year and the end of the year, and then one of one of the tables. There are five tables. But one of them uh, breaks it down by state. So uh, you can see if it's, you know, where the stores are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is an exhibit which there that not only lists the franchisees who are in the system, also lists those who left the system, mm. which can be by transfer or, you know, the agreement might have expired or whatever. But if there are terminations or the one column is uh, left the system other, which mm-hmm. to me usually means they just went out of business and mm-hmm. closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their name and contact information should be in that exhibit if they left in the last year. Okay. That makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. And, you know, what? I've had people that are looking to buy a franchise, say, here in Atlanta, uh-huh. and one of those people that left is in Atlanta. Mm. You know, we'll call him. Yeah. And a lot of times there's an ex- a perfectly good explanation. My wife got sick or we got transferred or something like that. Fine. Sure. Life comes at you, yeah. right? <laughs> but, but it isn't always that way. And sometimes right. you realize in talking to somebody that's complaining and negative and angry that, well, maybe the problem is is uh, in the look in the mirror. And right. See, yeah, exactly. See where the problem might be. Right. Who's yeah. the common denominator there, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Maybe it's the operator. Yeah. Uh, the exactly. franchisee. Exactly. Uh, okay, so here is the the million dollar question that people frequently ask: What is negotiable in the franchise agreement? Well, it I hate to say it depends. <laughs> it does depend. Lawyer answer, but it does depend. If it's a fairly new brand, they're likely to be more negotiable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, by the time the person has come to me, the franchisee. There have already been discussions, mm-hmm. you know, the, so the franchisor agreed that I wouldn't pay royalties for the first six months Great example. or I would pay a lower amount for the first year, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Or there might be, as I sort of alluded to earlier, there might be something that's not 
actually in the franchise agreement, but has maybe been discussed. So maybe a right of first refusal or an option on some additional territory, mm, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, but otherwise, you know, the royalty franchisors, as you said, that's sort of where they make their money. They generally are not negotiating that. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes there can be special circumstance. One thing we haven't talked about is all franchise agreements are going to have a non-compete provision. I am so glad you brought that yeah. up. And people are sort of used to that. That doesn't seem to surprise people. But mm-hmm. sometimes the candidate or his spouse or partner, business partner, might be somebody that's already been in the business in some way. And we might need to carve out something that – you know, Joe has is already a representative of such and such tires, tire brand, okay. and will be allowed to continue that business. Mm-hmm. And usually, in that case, the franchisor is aware of that, and that goes fine. Yeah, but uh, renegotiating the fundamental terms of the agreement that generally doesn't go very far. That makes sense. One thing you. You have, we mentioned, but usually there's a personal guarantee. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times the franchisor wants a, the spouse of the person to sign a guarantee. And yes. I encourage people just to fight back on that and say, no, this is my business. My spouse isn't involved. My spouse's money is not involved. He or she's, they're not, we're not going to do that. Okay. Yeah. And so that is an area that is commonly pushed back on is that personal guarantee. Well, it's pushed back on in terms of the spouse. Okay. <laughs> I think in every case, the franchisee is going to be expected to sign a personal guarantee. Okay. Now, with any guarantee, you can try to negotiate um, uh, limitations, like a dollar limit mm. or, or a time limit, that mm. if they're, if we're not in default in the first three years, then it drops off. Okay. That kind of thing. That makes sense. Yeah. The franchise agreement um, – if you're if you're doing a brick and mortar, you're going to do a restaurant. So you um, you sign a franchise agreement. You have a royalty obligation, but you have a lease and you have a loan. And if you decide it's not going well and you want to close, and you're fairly current, you're current with your franchisor. Mm-hmm. In most cases, that's going to be the end of it. They know you haven't done well, right? But that isn't true with your landlord, and it's not true with your bank. Mm. So, and you're going to be signing personal guarantees there. Okay, that makes sense. So those really are the bigger issue than worrying about the guarantee on the franchise agreement. Mm, okay. Yep, that makes perfect sense to me. Yep. Thank you for clarifying that. Very important. Uh, well, let's kind of talk about, we kind of have been talking about litigation lightly, you know, you know what's common, what's not common. Uh, litigation in the franchise area, what are types of claims that are out there that we should be aware of? Well, franchisors initiate it when usually when the franchisee has been a bad a bad boy um, <laughs> they they are underpaying maybe they closed and owe a, f- a lot of money it's mm. amazing to me i get calls of well we have this franchise and he hadn't paid royalties in six months and he owes us one <laughs> wow wow that's a lot yeah a lot of money but um that or uh he's closed and we found out that he's continuing in the business mm. in violation of that non-compete. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes from the franchisor standpoint, it's those kind of situations. Um, and that's all sort of based on the contract. 
from the franchisee standpoint, it's a little more complicated. So it's usually a situation where I bought this franchise, I wrote a check for 50000 I bought all this inventory, and uh, it's been a disaster. I feel like they lied to me, and um, you know, I want all my money back. Well, that's – and there are various ways to dress that up, but that's, that's a hard case. Yes, I would think so. And you really have to find some bad conduct – on the part of the franchisor to, sure. to make that go. The other area that has gotten more attention in recent years is claims by third parties. Well, there are two different claims. These are sort of statutory claims. Sometimes there have been franchisees who have claimed that uh, really the agreement says I'm an independent contractor, but really I'm just an employee of yours. I mean, you you got the accounts for me. It came out of the janitorial business. I was just going to say that sounds janitorial to me. (laughs) Yeah. You say, I'm going to sell you a franchise and I'm giving you $50,000 worth of accounts. Right. And you're going to service them. I'm going to tell you when and, you know, where and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds more like an employment arrangement. Mm. So there's that. And then um, another area is an employee of a franchisee that claims that they didn't get or paid properly wage and hour type claim overtime claim mm-hmm. and claim that the franchisor actually is what they call a joint employer yes that uh, and McDonald's got into some litigation on this and mm-hmm. that, you know that McDonald's directs everything about hours and you know who who works and different shifts and all that kind of thing. Okay. And there's been some statutory activity in California a lot of times leads the way on these things and has uh, changed the law a little bit on that, making those claims a little more viable. Mm-hmm. And it's changed a little bit with administrations in Washington. Yeah. Uh, back, um, back and forth now that we've gone back and forth a little bit in recent elections. So those, those have um, come up, but um, again, those are not really central to the underlying relationship between franchisor and franchisee. Right. And and the pushback around the joint employer it is really seems like it's now being favored as they recognize that it's not a joint employment uh, on a franchisee level. It's their employees and the franchisor is not a joint employer with the franchisee. I know that's been an ongoing battle, but are we are we finding it that it's really leaning more towards that non-joint? I think so. Yeah. And what um what had come up at one point was they would look the court would look at the con- provisions of the contract mm. and um, does the franchisor have the right to exercise certain kinds of control? Okay, not what had been looked at before is is the franchisor actually doing that? Mm. Is that the nature of the relationship? And I think mm. more and more we're getting back to back to that. Okay. You know, is the franchisor and and anytime there's a new theory or there's some case out somewhere where a franchisor gets popped, you add language, you find new paragraphs in the franchise. <laughs> so every one of them now says, "Mr. Franchisee, you are you acknowledge you are solely responsible mm-hmm. for all your employment matters, hiring, firing, terms of employment, etc., etc., etc." 
which kind of uh, explains why when someone reads that franchise agreement or franchise disclosure document, this seems to lean so much towards the franchisor versus the franchisee. And to me, that's a perfect example of why they have to put those clauses and provisions in place because they're really trying to think about all the what-if scenarios. Uh, uh, it, it adds to the length, and gosh, I get these. You've seen them, I'm sure. They just get longer and longer. I mean, I get some <laughs> that are almost 300 pages. Oh, and, uh, you know, you're reading and you're reading and you think, oh, I think I've read this before. I think <laughs> <laughs> you will comply with our standard. Yeah, I get, I, I get that. We got the I get, message. Yeah. I guess I figure if they repeat it, the message will really come through, right? <laughs> yeah. Years ago, I was at a, it was Southeast Franchise Forum program and Holiday Inn had a speaker and they had gone through a complete rebranding oh. and all their franchisees had spent a ton of money on their hotels mm. and had it had been productive, apparently. The revenues went up. Yeah. And I asked the question, well, is your franchise, and, you know, two, three, four million dollars at a Holiday Inn motel spent on renovation? And I asked the question, well, is it your franchise agreement gives you the right to mandate that? And yes. Mm-hmm. And um, sometime later, I saw their agreement. And in contrast to these others that are so long, it couldn't have been more than about 10 pages long. And on every page and in every paragraph, <laughs> it basically said, you will do Exactly what we, <laughs> what we, <laughs> yeah, okay, right. so yeah, that's uh, we are going to protect this brand, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they've done, it, and they have, so yes. you know, more power to them, right? And it, yeah. and it, it's paid off well for the franchisees, so yeah. there's value there too, yeah. So, and franchisees as a group, that's an extreme example, but sure. they tend to not want to spend money, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so if there's a local advertising requirement, you know, just you think that's something that people would realize they need to they do, need to but a lot of times not yes and so i've even had franchisors change the agreements mm-hmm. for new people so that that money is actually paid to the franchisor that administers it. so yes yeah. we need to get it and then we know that it's come in and we're going to oversee the spending of that money i meant to ask this earlier so i'm going to circle back around to this uh question that's in my mind uh, and it's around the non-compete and uh, obviously common practice to have a non-compete um, is there a term so let's say I have a residential cleaning franchise business it's a 10-year term that 10-year term comes to an end I decide not to renew my franchise agreement uh, how long I mean am, am I not allowed to then go out and start Pamela Curry's residential cleaning business. Uh, like, how long do I have to wait due to that non-compete? Well, it'll be spelled out in the uh, in the agreement. Sure. I mean, typically, it's uh, first of all, it's during the term. Okay. They don't want you. They don't want to Heck train you and then find out <laughs> right. you're, you're operating. Thank you for teaching me how to do this. Right. Huh? Exactly. Uh, Stealing my business recipe book. There. Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the next county, uh, and then uh, I would say typically maybe two years. Okay. I thought afterwards. that was coming. Okay. And then, very important, what is the territorial limitation? Mm. Yep. Um, and that's been an interesting area. You know, in Georgia, historically, it's very difficult to enforce these things. Ah. And they were all kind of traps that um, – and the rule was that if any part of it was invalid, then the whole thing collapsed. Mm. And so you would have franchise agreements drawn up in another state. That would say, for instance, that uh, you can't compete 
for two years within 50 miles of anywhere where we have a location. Ah, that seems okay. That doesn't seem unreasonable, but under the old law in Georgia, that was invalid because when you the rule was when you sign the agreement, you need to be able to look at a map right then and tell where you can go and not go, and mm. that you can't do that if it's based on where stores open up later. Gotcha. But the Georgia law changed uh, about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. and you know something like that probably works now. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, what uh, uh, trends? You know, trends in businesses um, being franchise. You know, it, it. We all think of food, right? <laughs> food related concepts. Uh, we all think of retail, bricks and mortar, because that's what we know as a consumer. What we drive by every day, uh, and as you and I know, there are thousands of franchises out there that cross over many different industry categories, which we've been mentioning, janitorial cleaning, residential cleaning, senior care. Uh, but what what do you start, and those are non-brick and mortar, let's say, right? Um, what are you seeing as far as trends that are happening? Well, I'm seeing less and less brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. And um, we talked before we yeah. started today about a brand that it looked pretty interesting, a game show, a game gaming brand, yeah. which which in the whole appeal was that it brought people in rather than being in their basements, you know, gaming with people that yeah. are somewhere they're all there together. Well, in the last two years, that's not been a good good model. Sure, um, and so I don't really see a whole lot of brick and mortar so much anymore, and if so, it's limited, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but more and more uh, uh, where you might have an office, like a, a home cleaning business, typically you'd have an office. Right. But, um, right. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And that appeals to me because uh, with what I do, I get people who are in some awful situation. And, uh, you know, they're on a lease and it's 6000 a month and they have an SBA loan and their house is pledged. And it's just tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas if you if you're a home cleaning franchise, yes, you write that check and you buy some supplies, and you know, and six months later, if it's not working, you know, you may lose that money, but that might be it. Right. So I, what uh, you're saying. I, I found that to be pretty appealing. Yeah. So a lot more trending, a lot more service based businesses coming out of the woodwork, all the way from like you know, cleaning services, home improvement. Um, listen, senior, pet services, senior, senior care. care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're really seeing uh, a lot of growth in those yeah. categories, I guess. Uh, still seeing brick and mortar. I see brick and mortar a lot when, uh, well, one, when you have the financial latitude to do that. And secondly, if you're looking for something that might permit more of a semi-absentee operator model, uh, it seems like those work really nicely for semi-absentee operators. Do you see that? Yes, and that makes sense. I mean, yes. you hire a good manager who's there. Because mm-hmm. increasingly, I when I meet with people and they're looking to buy a franchise, if I ask, are you going to quit your job? And, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, not planning on doing that. And the franchisor knows that. So, uh, yeah, any business that lends itself to that um, is going to appeal to a lot of people. Yep. Yeah. And with a lot of those, there, there's more upside, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you're running a subway, you're going to get a certain amount of business just because that name's up there, which sure. is great. 
but but there's a there's a limited uh, upside with a business like that. Whereas mm-hmm. if you've got a senior care business and you're really good at selling it and you know taking care of customers, you can do very well. Uh, yeah, Same with lower thing. with lower overhead. Right? Yeah, with yep. low, with relatively low overhead, yep. low fixed cost anyway. Yeah, good. Yeah. Well said. Very yeah. well said. Yeah, yeah. And I'm always amazed. I uh, I may have told this story last time, but years ago. You know, people come in and sometimes the concept is kind of like, what, you know, this is a business, this is a thing. And uh, I'd never heard of it, but she was looking to buy, it was a new, brand new concept uh-huh. called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Oh, and yeah. now you see it everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. And she bought this big territory in Atlanta, paid a lot of money, and she was very nice and very smart. You know, I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, why would people pay a lot of money to have you come get their stuff. So um, she bought it, and a few years later, she calls me. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is Alice Johnson. Do you remember me? And usually those are not good calls. Right. When I get that call, and I said, oh, yeah, I remember you. How, how's it going? Yes. And she said, great. So <laughs> this is a great business. As a matter of fact, I'm buying bigger territory. Mm. And she said that the 800 number, that's where the business comes from. Uh, We're not answering the phone. They the people call the eight hundred number. The franchisor directs the uh, appointment to us. Yeah, the appointment is set, and we just show up and do the work. Absolutely, you guys and some trucks. I've used that service yeah. <laughs> as a consumer. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so, what are some of the challenges that you see franchisors and franchisees facing? Well, with franchisors. A lot of these are people, these are entrepreneurs, and they have, you know, their own store, too, and they have their idea how things ought to be done, and it's hard to let go and understand that that franchisee is not your employee and Mm. that even if they're good, they're going to do some things that are not in accordance with what you would like for them to do. Sure. So that's hard for people. Mm-hmm. And you get people that are just very frustrated. I, get, I have a couple there. Whenever they call, they're angry about something. <laughs> and um, and then from a franchisee standpoint, you know, that's it takes a special kind of person to be a successful franchisee. Uh, sure. You've probably seen this, but you have to be something of a risk taker, right? Yeah. You're going to be putting a lot of money into this thing. Absolutely. Um, and you're hedging your risk a little bit. By buying a franchise. That's right. But you also have to understand that it's a brand that they own, not you, mm-hmm. and you've got to follow the follow gui- the system guidelines. That's right. I had somebody years ago, I don't even remember what kind of business it was, and she was really at loggerheads with the franchisor, and they were fussing at her. She wasn't doing well. Mm-hmm. Her sales were okay, but her profitability was poor. And mm. she came in and she said, they told me that um, I was paying my employees too much. And she said, what, what business is it of theirs that what I pay my employees? And I said, well, you know, this is my client. And I said, well, you know, that is that is their business. To You want them to look at this and right. try to help you. So, and that's what they're trying to do. I don't know what you're paying your employees, and maybe you're not overpaying. But, you know, some people just don't play well with others, I guess is yes. the term. And yep. they're just not going not gonna to work well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, – I knew a guy who was with Fresh and Yogurt, and he said people are always saying that uh, they know somebody be a great franchisee because he's a real entrepreneur. Mm. And he said, you know, I don't want entrepreneur. I want somebody that's going to follow the system. Follow this the system. This is not a complicated 
business and we want people that'll yeah. do, do what we tell them. They're not cooking hot dogs and, you know, selling burgers at the yogurt shop. Right, exactly. I, you know, that, and that's why I always kind of giggle. I say, you know what, sure, there's always a performance gap within a franchise system. And, you know, if everyone's receiving the same training, the same support, same brand name, same proven methods of operations, uh, and let's say you have two franchisees sitting in equal market opportunities, one's blowing it up, the other one's not doing all that great. Well, what's the common denominator there? It's the franchisee. It's the operator. One of the operators maybe is choosing to follow the system or maybe they are stronger in sales or stronger in customer service or they don't have Uncle Bob who isn't very friendly working the front desk. You know, know, those are the little things that can create the performance gap and usually it comes down to the operator. I actually had a, a guest on the radio show, gosh, I think it was last year. He wrote the book Wealthy Franchisee and um, one of the topics we got on was location, obviously, is important, uh, but even an okay location is still good enough. And one of the, I guess, one of the real points he was trying to make was uh, what really can differentiate one franchisee from a, another is the human element and the mindset. And uh, yeah, learning to play well together, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a lot of times, um, Somebody will open a franchise business and it'll do well, and then it starts to decline. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes there's actually been a change in management. Maybe the owners are, have aged and they brought their kids in. Mm-hmm. I, I have that come up recently, and um, you know all the kids now are on the and kids. I say you know they're adults. Adult. They're all in the payroll, but you know we don't need to be. This is a pie store. We don't need to be paying a <laughs> CFO. Eighty thousand dollars, right? Just because she's married to her son, that's not you know, it's not going to work. That's not the idea of business practice, no. right? No. <laughs> Tom, you are a wealth of knowledge, and I really, really appreciate everything you've shared about franchise law. I hope our listeners really received a lot out of this. Uh, in closing, I- anything else you can think of that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I've enjoyed it. Uh, as an area of practice, just get to see all the businesses out there. Yes. And I've represented a lot of franchisees who've done real well and are very pleased with the business. Absolutely. So, yeah, there are failures and there's litigation, but um, a lot of times with uh, my franchisor clients, I'll look through the list of their franchisees and I realize, you know, 80% of these people I never have any contact with because that's because they're doing just fine that's right that's right so it does give an opportunity you just need to be careful going in Mm -hmm. that it's a business you want um it's the kind of business you really want to be in Uh, can you afford it yes it makes sense for you you know is it a business that should be around Mm -hmm. you know it's not something to do with pay phones or some too technology (laughs) too technology sensitive Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are some great opportunities out there. I agreed, agreed. Yeah, a lot of we've seen a lot of wealth created underneath the franchise model, and there is a degree of risk, but it's also a risk mitigation um, opportunity as well to become a business owner, put you in a stronger position for success. Uh, and you hit on something that I think is really important that I frequently say. It really is about alignment. You know, are we aligning with you as an operator and what kind of operator you can be? Are we aligning with uh, your investment range? What's going to make sense for you financially? Are we aligning with the market opportunity? 
uh, for you? Uh, is it aligning with your lifestyle and your long-term vision, short-term goals, long-term goals? So, you know, it's all about alignment. And uh, and that's why you work with people like me and Absolutely. my business partners, Absolutely. right? Yep. As, as we're going to help uh, help you navigate those waters and, and find a franchise that really does align for you. Yeah. Uh, but again, Tom, thank you so much. All right, I, I it's mean, my pleasure. Always enjoy our conversations. Um, you know, I just want to say, you know, there's such significant value of working with a franchise attorney. Uh, a franchise agreement is a legal contract that you're entering into, and franchise law again is specialized. Uh, so really important, be wise uh, as you are selecting your franchise attorney, <laughs> such as Tom Branch. You want to have someone who has deep experience, uh, who's willing to get in there, review the agreement, explain the documents and the obligations as a franchisee, and to let you know if there are any concerns or clauses that need to be balanced. Sometimes it's just balancing out those clauses. Uh, so again, thank you, Tom. And I also want to go ahead and I, I want to be sure to, to thank our listeners. Uh, thank, thank you to our guests, our listeners, and our sponsors. This is Pamela Curry, the host of Franchise Business Radio and Certified Franchise Consultant. Please, please remember that if you or someone you know is considering franchise ownership, then don't feel like you have to navigate those waters all by yourself. There is a lot to learn. Myself and business partners specialize in helping individuals on selecting a franchise and being effective in doing their due diligence to make sure you're making an informed decision when selecting a franchise. So if franchise ownership is something you would like to seriously pursue, then contact me for a complimentary franchise consultation. I would welcome being a resource to you. Simply email me at pam at franchise intellect or call text 847-970-8765. Again, that's 847 847- Nine seven zero eight seven six five. As a simple reminder, the Franchise Business Radio is a platform for bringing fr- together business professionals to connect, educate, and collaborate to serve the franchise community and those considering franchise ownership. As always, thank you to our guests, our listeners, and our sponsors. Uh, specifically, Franchise Intellect, insider knowledge for selecting a business, and also made possible by Franchise City and FranServe. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you again for joining Pamela Curry and her guests for the Franchise Business Radio Show, sponsored by Franchise Intellect, knowledge of the franchise community for franchise selection. More info at FranchiseIntellect.com. Also made possible in part by Franchise.City, a better way to buy a franchise. More info at Franchise.City. And FranServe, the world's largest franchise consulting and expansion organization. More info at FranServe.com. Use the social media links here to share today's show and check out more episodes at FranchiseBusinessRadio.com. Dot com.